Amen. I'm thankful for uh, the Lord's move in our life. Amen. I hope you all are uh, grateful for the work of the Lord. I want to encourage you um, something that happened this week. Um, I met with a, a friend, and I'm hoping that maybe we can build some relationships. A dad and I have been just praying about the ability to fellowship, but in the process of this, I something happened that I have not done in quite a while. I went to uh, Walmart in Katusa. I'm so, I know I shouldn't have. And while we were while I was there uh, walking in, there was a middle-aged guy um, standing out in the rain. He had a table full of stuff, and normally that's a guy that I would avoid because I already know I don't want to. I don't want to be sold anything. And as I was walking up, I just really felt not to walk away, and I drove drew closer to him, and um, he said, hey, would you like to help um, help people get free from drug addiction and depression and suicide? And, and I said, well, I'm, yeah, I believe in that. What, what is it you're offering? And uh, he said, well, we're a re- rehab program that is uh, preaching Jesus. And that was encouraging to me. I don't know if you've seen anybody around. Um, I saw a whole group of guys one time at a gas station and they were out stopping people on the corners and handing flyers and stuff out. And I didn't feel good about, about it. And then I pulled into the gas station. They're standing back behind the vans all smoking. And <laughs> I kind of walked up on purpose and they're trying to put them out. And um, I didn't feel that way. And uh, they had some stuff that they, that they had made um, that they put the guys to work. It reminded me so much. It made me think about all the discipleship. And I got an opportunity. I hadn't told Mandy yet. I had got an opportunity to share her testimony with them. And I also shared Shane's and the, the contrast between somebody who continues to see Christ and somebody who loses the vision of Christ. And um, so the program is called Life Changers. I knew nothing about it. Um, I told Dustin, I bought this plaque kind of a thing they made because it sponsored uh, two months of a bed for somebody. They don't charge anything but they make these products and they go out and sell them to help pay for the stuff. And I thought, well, that's good because we tried to do that, get them busy, get them, get them on track doing stuff. But they're out of Rolla, Missouri. So I'm, I'm going to look into them a little bit. And I thought, well, Lord, if they're a, if they're a, um, a hoax or a, you know, a scam, then I gave it to you. <laughs> I, I didn't give it to them, but be praying about for them. If you would, I just felt something there. I felt a real genuine, um, a real genuine desire to change in this, in this guy. His name was Keith. And so I just, man, I feel like God is opening doors. I feel like God's opening doors. We for, I don't know if it's because sometimes, and I'm not preaching yet. Don't start timing me. Um, I don't know if it's sometimes because we get so preoccupied with our stuff that we can't see the doors that God's opened. Or if it's just his timing that he hasn't opened them for a certain time. But I just feel like that God is definitely trying to Bring us together with people who love him like what we do. And I know that we do tonight. Amen? That's why you all are here. Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Acts in the sixth chapter. And um, I cannot get out of the book of Acts. I'm trying to. I have other things that I have been thinking about and also mulling over at the same time. But I just keep returning back to this 
because I, th- I think there's something that the Lord is wanting to show us again tonight. And so I want you to look at the fifth or the sixth chapter and the fifth verse. I want to read a few verses to set up Stephen's message. I want to talk about that tonight. The fifth verse. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied. In Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Down to verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council, the Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Lord, help me to deliver what you have put in my heart, Jesus, that you would be glorified in our midst tonight. And we give you all the praise and all the honor, Jesus, in your mighty name. And everybody say amen. So I want to investigate something tonight, make a case. I do that. I don't know if maybe it's just because that's how my mind thinks, but I, I want to make a, a scriptural case for something I said a couple of weeks ago. Um, something happened around the seventh chapter of Acts that previous to this moment in the early church was different the seventh chapter of Acts changed how the early church lived and how it functioned in the world. This is a, a shift that happens. I think circumstances produce change at times. Now, a lot of preachers would go down a lot of roads with this. This is a good, you know, get on that and you can really preach that. That's not the crux of the message tonight, but I will say that circumstances produce change. Sometimes God puts us in circumstances in order to get accomplished what he wants accomplished in our lives. Sometimes we put ourselves in circumstances and we can't blame that on God. But there are times I feel as though this move was one of those circumstances. I feel as though that God was wanting to change some things in me. Maybe y'all were perfect and you just were exactly where you needed to be and maybe you just all moved here with me to encourage me. But I feel like that God was trying to change some things in me trying to show me something different. I feel like I'm seeing some things differently now. This is one of those moments. This is, this is probably for you and I sitting here tonight, the most pivotal point in history beyond Christ. Because if this doesn't happen, the gospel doesn't go out to the Gentiles. 
This is the beginning of this gospel being, being released unto the Gentiles. There were, there were Grecian women, um, proselyte Jews who were of different nationalities and, and they were not being served. And, and so this is the spark of this. But there had been tolerance among the Jews of this newfound Christianity. They weren't called Christians until Antioch. They were known as the way. And we don't think of culture. We don't think of Jewish culture like it was. They had all kinds of different rabbis. People had their own rabbis that they followed. And that's why they were baptized. God never commanded them to baptize into following rabbis. But the rabbis baptized them. And it was an outward sign that they were following Absolutely, baptism was only ever an outward sign of who your rabbi was. That's what it was. That's all it ever was. Um, Who you were coming through, under. Even Jesus said, you need to baptize me, John, because Jesus is coming through the ministry of John. It's where it's coming. It's funneled down to John. And so this is, you're coming through this thing by this rabbi. And there was a tolerance, though, even though it's weird for us to think, I don't know if you've ever even thought about it, because you probably haven't, that even though they crucified Jesus, there was still a, for lack of better terms, I've used it a few times, but tolerance for the the, the person of Jesus within the temple and within the synagogues and within the Jewish people in Jerusalem even though they crucified him, even though there were those who were following the way, they were still tolerated. Um, There were many who absolutely rejected the message of Christ. But we just read that in in this process in Acts 6, that there were many, including many priests, a great many priests, who were coming into belief in Jesus. But the gospel which had been preached in the early part of Acts was a gospel that was still three things or four things in my three. It was still centered in Jerusalem at this point. It was preached to the Jews only at this point. And one which had not yet set the Jews at odds with their Jewish customs and practices. So you were able to to function as a Jew and believe in Jesus. That was possible. You were able to still keep the law and believe in Jesus. The Apostle Paul, remember, is the one who starts speaking so largely against this. But he's, he's not at this point. He's still Saul and he's not been converted. And there is no message of the grace. They don't even understand the grace. That's still being processed. This is a Jewish centristic gospel. It's going to the Jews. It's for the Jews. It allows Jewish custom. And so there's a tolerance of different rabbis as long as you remain a Jew. This is what Peter's trying to accomplish when he goes to Cornelius' house. This is why he's, hey, What stops these guys from being baptized? Is there any reason why they can't be? Because they're baptizing him into Judaism, but also into Jesus. 
So this is a, a, a prevalent concept within the church. We find Peter and John entering the temple in Acts chapter 3. This is post. This is at least 50 plus days after Jesus has been crucified because Pentecost has happened and now they are going into the temple where they see the man that they, that uh, he asked for them silver and gold and they said, we don't have any and such as we have in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. They are going into the temple, which tells us they are tolerated within the temple. And although that may not seem super important, but it is, it's, it's kind of important for us to understand. <clears throat> so, the Acts 2 message, which had been, previous, uh, which had been received by, uh, previously by many of the Jews, was not offensive enough to get Peter kicked out of the temple. Have you thought about that? I look at what Peter said in Acts 2 as a powerful message. How many agree? I mean, it's like, whoa, this is a powerful message. It was not offensive enough to get him kicked out of the temple. Something else has to happen in order for them to be removed. Something else that strikes my mind is that the Acts 2 gospel is not a complete gospel. The Acts 2 gospel that I hear constantly being preached within the apostolic movement is a partial gospel. It's a gospel that is only to Jews. Everybody but who it's preached to. They're gathered in Jerusalem, devout men who are seeking God, but they're Jews. The gospel hasn't gone to Jerusalem or out of Jerusalem. Remember, the result of Pentecost is that it was going to go to Jerusalem, then Judea, reaching out, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the world. Acts 2 is just the beginning. You don't have a complete gospel in Acts 2. We cannot build our faith off of Acts 2 including Acts 2.38. It doesn't work. And I say that because if you ever listen to any apostolic preaching, it's always Acts 2.38. But it's incomplete. It's the very beginning of the gospel. It is the gospel, but it's the beginning of the gospel. Acts 2 is preached only to the Jews. And Peter's message was spoken directly to the Jews. And the ones who had crucified him he had a specific indictment toward them. He had specific instructions for what they needed to do when they said, what must we do now that we have done these things? What do we do? And he said, man, you need to get baptized in Jesus' name because you need to make public confession. You need to let everybody see that you're going into the water and, and taking Jesus as your rabbi, the one you, you crucified, you need to take him as your, as your teacher. <clears throat> and this is specifically to that. But now as we move to Acts 6, we find, Peter, or we find Stephen really not commissioned to preach. This isn't what, isn't what Stephen has been commissioned to do. What has Stephen been commissioned to do? If you read the beginning of the chapter, I didn't read it all because for the sake of time, He's been commissioned with those six other men to care for the needs of the widows and orphans that are proselytes, that are not Jews. They'll take care of the Jews, but they want these guys to take care of the widows who are complaining because they don't have anything to eat and they're being overlooked. And so they commission men full of the Spirit of God to begin to make sure that their needs are being met by the widows and orphans in the church. This is the function of the church, by the way. This is what the church is supposed to do. We are supposed to help the needy. We are supposed to help those within the body. 
Not the needy in the world. <clears throat> Jesus even identifies this when he says, the poor you will always have with you. But the needy within the body of Christ, the needy within the church, those who are unable to provide for themselves, those who are <clears throat> no longer have a covering of a husband, those who no longer have a covering of a father, this is the function of the church. It needs to be done. So they commissioned Stephen to do this, not to preach. He's not been <clears throat> commissioned to preach, but to serve. But the word of God is being spread through him. And so many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And now the result of this is that they brought him to a council to answer for his supposed blasphemy. The result of Stephen's message to the council, the Sanhedrin, which is clearly what this is speaking of, which is the administrative council of the Jews. They govern everything. If you are in trouble, you go to the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin makes judgment about what's going to happen on spiritual things, and so they bring him before this council. And this changed the course of the relationship between the Jews and between those who were in the way, the fledgling Christian church. It created intense hostility, persecution, as well as instigating Saul's assault upon Christians. The key to understanding the shift from tolerance to intense rage is at the heart of what God anointed Stephen to speak to these men. I believe now then what I've just said, we are going to find what causes problems when we read Stephen's message. Now I'm going to identify with what he is saying to them but the whole time we are going through this process, I want you to think about how this applies to how people respond. What creates, what creates division? What creates uh, angst and schism within the church? And we'll get there in a, in, a, in a bit, but I want you to be thinking about that as we're going through this. <clears throat> so the charges made against Stephen were slanderous. They were libel. And bribed, but they shared his response to his accusers. Here it is, verse 11. Uh, this is what they said. They suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came to him and caught him and brought him to the council. And they said, they set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So here are the charges made against him. He speaks blasphemy against Moses, against God, against the holy place, against the law, and that he says that Jesus is going to destroy this Jewish system. This is the charges made against Stephen. So now the mock trial starts. It's a similar thing to what happened with Jesus. They have bribed people to say these things because they can find no real fault in what he is saying. It's amazing to me. He is speaking something that should be easy enough for them as a Jewish council to, re to speak out against. He is opposing what they're saying, but they have to instead produce lies about him, and, and it, it just strikes me as, as funny because that should not be difficult being that they share a different opinion 
he had no defense. There was nowhere he could go to defend himself because they hate what he's saying. They don't have to say he's a liar, but they, that's the direction they go. That's kind of how Satan likes to work. Satan wants to call everybody else a liar when he's really the one. He's just like a Democrat. <clears throat> so the mock trial starts, and the high priest asks of him, are these things true? Stephen does not even address these men that are lying against him. He is like a surgeon who systematically dissects the very heart of their arguments in general. This is a beautiful message. I mean, when you understand what Stephen's doing, this unlearned man, this man who's not even called to preach, this man who's commissioned to serve, he's not an orator of any nature that we know, is called in an instant to give an answer about what he is doing. And this is just a beautiful answer that he gives. So he sets out to prove a couple of things. One of them being that God never intended for the quote-unquote holy place to be a specific plot of land and that so many of the Jews' most cherished experiences were outside of the holy land. This is, what Stephen, this is how Stephen's going to address it. They said he is bringing, he's bringing blasphemy against the holy place, against Moses, against the law, against God, and, and mainly, you know, we know, still today, the holy place. So he starts with the holy place. I just want you to skim down through this. We're not going to read every verse of the chapter, but I want you to catch what he's saying. Verse 2 of the seventh chapter, he said, Men, brethren... And fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto your father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Quran. That's interesting. It was in Mesopotamia when God spoke to Abraham, not in current Israel. And Abraham was an idol maker. He's in the Chaldees and Stephen's going to start pointing this out. Look at verse 5 now. And he gave him none inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set a foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him. When as yet he had no child. Stephen now begins to address the very land that they are calling holy. The Jews believe themselves to be a upper echelon. They are different. They're set apart. This is talk, talked of, of God to them. God has spoken about them being a separate people. God has given them defining characteristics, so it's bred into them. But they believe it's about land. And Stephen's going to say, no, no, it's not really about land. In fact, he makes this point that's really interesting. He states that though Abraham was promised the land of Canaan, he never really possessed even a pace length of promised land in Canaan. Does that even sound right? Like at the outset, that just, well, that can't be. But look at Hebrews really quick. Hebrews 1.9 is going to confirm exactly what Stephen says. I, gotta, I didn't mark it, so I got to flip there myself. Hebrews 11.9, it says, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, 
the heirs of him of the same promise. For they looked for a city whose builder or whose foundations and whose builder and maker is God. This confirms Stephen's statement that Abraham was only a foreigner, a sojourner, a stranger in the land. It wasn't ever his land. He was a nomad living and going through the land of Canaan. And that the promise really wasn't to him, but it was to the seed of Abraham. But at the time the promise is given, he doesn't even have any children as we know. Now look down to verse 7. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come forth and serve me in this place. Uh, Stephen's argument is that the promise of God was not so much about a holy land, but rather about a deliverance from Egypt. You can go home and read all of this and you'll be able to put it all together better, but for the sake of time. Now, look at verse 8. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. So that this was really about the deliverance from Egypt. That's really what the land was about. That he was going to take them from the bondage that they were in and bring them into a place of freedom. Freedom of worship. And that the beloved patriarchs were born before there was a possession of the promised land. Again, he's setting the case up like a lawyer to bring down this idea of the very holy place. Now down to verse 15. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers Jacob lived much of his life in Egypt, and he died in Egypt. Verse 16, and they were carried over into Shechem, or Sychem, and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of, a sum of money from the sons of Imor, the father of Shechem. Jacob, or Israel, was buried in Shechem in the hated and despised land of Samaria. This is a strange way that he's going down through this because he's not even addressing it, but he's bringing it to the point. Look at verse 20. In which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair and nourished up in his father's house for three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and in deed. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Moses was born in Egypt. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised in Pharaoh's house. He learned and excelled in all of the Egyptian customs and culture. And it wasn't until he was 40 that he even visited his brothers in Israel. This is the argument of Stephen because now we're talking about the holy place. Now let's talk about the law and the lawgiver. Because that's what they believed Moses to be. The lawgiver. Down to verse 29. 
Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. One might ask, was Moses, I believe this is what Stephen would be saying, one might ask, was Moses the lawgiver defiled by the fact that he lived in Midian? He grew up in Pharaoh's house. Midian, where he marries a priest, a, a, a high priest of, Mid, of the Midianites, daughter, and has two children in Midian. This is a convoluted bloodline now. This is an, an interracial, not pure, not separate, not holy in that sense. And, by the way, we know this to be true, that Moses was circumcised, but he didn't even circumcise his own sons. And they're well aware of all of these facts. And they stand in the face of everything they are holding dear. Now look at verse 33. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. It was on Mount Sinai. Where is Mount Sinai? In Arabia. That Moses was given the law. And that God called the place that he was on holy. Arabia. Sinai. Egypt. Midian. The Ur of the Chaldees. Do you understand what, what Stephen's just done? What he has done is he has undermined the very case that Jerusalem is holy. He's undermined the very case that God was concerned with land when what God was really trying to get to was the, of, of course we know, the heart of the issue. And in fact, if you look at verse 38, that it was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke unto him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles given to us. Where the Ten Commandments, which are revered and most holy and carried about and promoted and loved. And Stephen says, listen, where did he get these things? He didn't get them here. He got them in Arabia. So Stephen now shifts to address the issue of the temple itself. The most holy place. They believe the land to be holy. They believe it to be the promise. When the promise that God had given all along was about the seed and about deliverance from bondage, Egypt, which is a type of us being delivered from sin, we know all these things from our perspective. But we got to remember, we're looking back to the Jews and they don't know these things. And now he's going to shift to the temple itself, to the holy place. Look at verse 48. Howbeit the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven 
is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house shall you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Stephen provokes their anger as he states that while, yes, God had given them the tabernacle in the wilderness, that it really was just a symbol and that God did not dwell in temples made with hands. This is where the agitation really accelerates. And now he turns to the issues of the heart. Look at verse 51. This is where it's been going all along. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart. There's not really much that you can call a Jew worse than calling him uncircumcised. Really, that's, I mean, to them, that's, that's it. You are a heathen. In fact, what is, what is um, I think it's David calls Goliath, this, this uncircumcised dog. It's, it's an insult. It's, it's a reference to the impurity. And he says, this uncircumcised, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your hearts. This is pretty inflammatory. He's not intending to soothe this over. If you want to get out of stoning, this is not what you want to say. Put it that way. You uncircumcised in your hearts and your ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Now, you can go back and reread this. At what point does Stephen say, Oh, no, no, that's not true. No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I... Not even one. He's not concerned. He understands something that I was trying to allude to early on. He understands that there is no answer that's going to get him out of this situation except for the denial of Christ. That would be the only possible way. He cannot defend. You know you cannot defend lies. There's nothing you can do to stop the slander. And Stephen understands this. He's, I'm not going to waste my last breath. He, he realizes what's going on here. I, I believe because he's been there, he is, understands, I, I don't know that he's a Jew. I believe he is the one man that says he's a proselyte, Nicholas. I got to believe if Stephen was, it probably would have called him one too. So if he's a Jew, he is fully aware of what the Sanhedrin does when you fall under their judgment. It's death. He's already watched them murder Jesus. Why would he think they're not going to do the same to him when they bring him before the same council? So Stephen understands something. If I'm going out, I'm going out with the glory of Christ in my last breath. If I'm going to be judged in this regardless of what I say, I'm not going to backpedal on this issue. Now, I think this, uh, this isn't really the point of what I'm trying to get to tonight, but I think we need to understand something. It will not be long 
before we will not be able to win the arguments against the LGBT alphabet mafia. You're not going to be able to stand in defense and backpedal and softball this thing enough to get out of trouble if you're going to speak any truth. And I think on this little rabbit trail that what we need to do is to become, to become focused in our faith and understand that retreat is not the position that God intends for his church. He does not intend for us to, to move off of the ground that he has given us. He does not intend for us to question about gender. Man, this is hitting everywhere. And I'm hearing preachers talk about abortion. And, and a lot of preachers can still kind of stand up on abortion. But when it comes to the LGBT stuff, how many of you have seen that the same preachers who will talk about abortion being wrong are really having some difficulty calling out homosexuality now? Really? Yeah. I just heard a preacher do it the other day. Oh man, these are, you gotta stop abortion. You gotta, uh, he went on for a bit. Okay, fine. And he said, and you know another thing, we gotta be, you know, we gotta be aware of this LGB and stopped. And abortion. And it literally jumped out of my mind. Why, what, what's wrong? What, what's going on here? Is there this fear? There is. You wanna get canceled? Do that. You can, you can talk about abortion, don't you dare talk about trans rights. Don't you dare talk about men not belonging to women's restrooms. That's not going to happen. I think we need to understand, and that's just one of the issues. That's not even a vital issue. People in the world are going to live and die in their sins, and that, whatever happens, happens. But my point is, some positions are not defendable. It's just a matter of your going down with Christ. Jesus said, this world hates me and it's going to hate you. You cannot make people love you. You cannot make the world love you. There's nothing you're going to be able to do to be kind enough. I will address it. This deal with the pronouns that comes up all the time now. And that I'm literally hearing hundreds of pastors saying that the Christ-like thing to do is if a man now identifies as a woman, to call him her. Do we really think for a second that Jesus would not have called out the demon within them? That is causing them to believe that they are a man and they're not anymore? I mean, I just, but we're, we're struggling with this because there's this false narrative. I've got a picture in my mind now I can see, and it's the ecumenical movement. Ecumenical means that we all come together. It means Baptist, and it means Pentecostal, and it means Catholic. It means, in some cases, I've even seen Mormons. It means what we do is we strip away Everything except what we can agree on. And what is, the, what is the one thing that everyone can agree on? God is love. 
So the ecumenical movement is God is love. And what we, we got to come together. Now, listen, I want to be clear. What Pastor and I, and all of you, I mean, feel the same way, but what we're talking about when we're praying for fellowship is not ecumenicalism. In fact, it's the opposite of that. I will not fellowship with the commonality of God is love. What I'm going to fellowship with is God is Christ. That's what I'm looking for. I don't care whether you're Baptist or Apostolic or Trinitarian, whether you're full gospel or part gospel. I don't care what you call yourself. If you believe Jesus is God and you are pursuing him, this is what we're looking to fellowship. We will not come down off of this in order to appease the councils. We're not going to pretend. We have been offered multiple times since we've been here to use people's churches. And with good intention, I appreciate those, those offerings toward us, but we always stumble on the same thing. When we get in there and start preaching, Jesus is God and we're pursuing him and somebody tells that pastor or that organization, hey, by the way, you realize these guys are not Trinitarian. Well, we just go in and we just, because it'll be easy and we'll have somewhere to go and we won't have to do all this moving and we don't have to get down here early and set up. We don't have to tear it down and, and boy, that should be a lot easier. So maybe just for a time, we just don't really have to preach that. There's no way to defend this position without being offensive is the point. And what we will see in this chapter is that when you reduce it down to Jesus, you are going to get the knives. They're all coming out. And they're coming at you. People are okay with God as love. People are okay with, with a lot of things. But they're not okay with just Jesus. Stephen makes it clear. He says, listen. You have persecuted the prophets. You've resisted the Holy Spirit. And, and that you were given the law, but you didn't even keep the law. It was your tenant. It was yours to, to guard and to protect, and you didn't even keep it. And he makes it very clear that the very system which God had given to them, they used to kill the just one. This is what really ramps up the rage. When he says, listen, not only is this place not holy and this temple isn't holy and really Moses got the law and he was in a land that wasn't even holy and Moses was in Midian and I'm not sure that he was so holy and Abraham was down in the Chaldees and he wasn't so holy. That is irritating. But when he points out the fact that they used the system that God gave to kill the prophets and they used the system that God gave to ultimately kill the Christ. Now, now there is a dividing line. This is what I see clearly in Stephen's message. I'm going to say it. People who kill the prophets will always be drawn to priest who reduce religion to ritual and exalt 
racial pride and prejudice. Let's put it in today's language. Pastors and organizations who reduce spiritual things down to fleshly things and exalt separationism and schism draw a following of self-righteous people who are holier than everyone else. This is the message that Stephen just conveyed. You have taken the things of God and you have made them fleshly. And the result of this is that the mass is led astray. I want to read the 54th verse. And when they heard these things, they were cut to their heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. They begin to devour him with their mouths. They weren't running up and biting him. But they begin to rail on him. Think about the thief on the cross. The thieves that were railing at Christ. If you were really God. If you were really the son of God. You know this, this kind of thing. And they are now full on verbal attack against the holy Stephen. They begin to rail on him with their mouths. But even still, they restrained themselves. Stephen had just laid to waste the dearest tenets of their faith. But the final straw and what sealed his fate was in his final words. Verse 55. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing in the right of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing in the right of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I think that we can see the picture clearly of our age. In this, everyone is claiming to love Jesus. People are tolerating Jesus, even if it rubs them the wrong way. We can talk about Jesus. I see all of these things now. I, I, I follow this, this person who posts all of these things about, um, uh, you know, like homosexual churches that are, they love to talk about Jesus. They love to. You'd think they would shy away. They think they would just want to live their life. No, they want the acceptance and they're penetrating all over in the churches and they're getting in here. And I hear this all the time. They love to talk about Jesus. And people will tolerate some of Jesus, even if it rubs them the wrong way. But when faced with the reality that everything must be stripped away and only Jesus is what remains, this is where the rejection happens. 
Stephen's most important sentence of his message comes in verse 56. You probably do not know this, but Stephen is the only person besides the Lord himself to call Jesus the Son of Man. Only one. You would think that Jesus would refer to himself frequently as the Christ, as the Messiah, but he rarely, rarely does. And he tolerates them calling him the Christ, but he does not celebrate it. You would think that he would refer to himself often as the Son of God, but by my count, I can only see him calling himself the Son of God four times. But nearly 90 times in the Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And only Stephen references Jesus as being the Son of Man. Why is this important? Because this is ultimately what causes them to rush upon him. They are literally plugging their ears. They are stopping their ears and running and tackling him. Throwing him out of the city. Over what? I see the Son of Man. Why? What's so offensive about this? Messiah is a Jewish term. Messiah speaks to the deliverer that is coming for the Jews and the Jews only. Son of man is a reference to the son of humanity. Not the Jews. Everyone. Now think of the times where Jesus looks at them and says in Matthew, Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? This is constantly what he's doing and referring to himself. And this is the sum If you summed up Stephen's message, it is this. I see the Son of Man standing alone in the authority of God. Sum up the whole message. And this is where they cannot tolerate the message of Christ. What we can see clearly in our age is this. When Stephen declares Jesus as the Son of Man standing in authority, he is striking the final blow against Jewish nationalism. Think about that. This message sets Paul, sets Saul on a course of murder and destruction in the name of Yahweh. The slaughterings and the breathings out, the, 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 all of the stuff that's coming, it starts at the time that they carried Stephen out of the city, devout men, and buried him. And Saul is breathing out slaughterings against the church. Why? Why? Because Stephen shook, as Hebrews said, until nothing else can stand. And yet again, there is a shaking until all that is left is Christ. 
He poked holes in every single thing and brought it down to Jesus. And when you do this, this is where people can no longer fellowship with you. This is where. We cannot compromise on this, church. We cannot ecumenicalize on this. This recognition, what, what Stephen has done, is to identify that Judaism is done. What he's done is to eliminate Jewish custom, Jewish law, Jewish ritual, Jewish sacrifice, all of it, the temple, every bit of it, done. And now, you've got to follow Jesus. That's it. That's the sum of his message. And the result of that message is that he is murdered for what he preached. And I begin to think about that. So prevalent for us. Because if we will back off this message, Pastor, then we can fellowship. We can find fellowship. We can get in somewhere. And if we will allow, this is what the Lord put in my heart. We're all good with Jesus until somebody starts poking holes in what we believe. That's what God spoke to me. Are you okay with following Jesus when everything you thought was right isn't? When your whole life you've been raised in a holiness movement, Pastor, as a Trinitarian, and at 38 years old, you start pastoring, you don't really, you're not trained by seminary. You don't really know where to go. And you start just saying, well, Lord, we're going to open the Bible. And I'm just going to preach what's in here. I don't even, I don't know really what I believe too, too much. I don't understand this Trinity thing. I don't really know. But are you okay when every single doctrine that you believed is wrong? Or is doctrine more sacred? Are we okay and we can, this is easy. We can point, I'll, I'll point a few. Are we okay when we realize that speaking in tongues isn't what it's all about? And it's just about Jesus? Are we okay? Oh, we're all okay. We're all good here. In fact, some of you are like, yes, amen, let's keep it that way. We, Rick, te we were teasing the other day, and um, I said, you know, sometimes people come in the church and speak in tongues. He said, I'm an old Baptist. I'm okay if they don't. <laughs> I understand that. I understand that. There's a, there's a lot more comfort for me there too lately. See all this mess. Okay, yeah, we're good with that. Are we okay when, uh, when we realize that really wearing a pair of pants as a woman isn't going to send you to hell? And really it's about following Jesus with your heart. Are we okay? Oh, we're all good. We're all good because that doesn't affect us. But what happens when everything we've built upon, we realize that really everything except Jesus, the things we thought were holy, the things we thought were important, the things we thought we needed to focus on, what happens when Stephen gets up and preaches to us? Really, that's not about any of that stuff. It's not about echoes of Calvary. It's not about oneness doctrine. It's not about our belief about, uh, about tongues. It's not whatever we can develop. It's not doctrinal statements of faith and put on our website. It's not about the way we do worship. What happens? It's not about having a building. It's not about having a big crowd. 
It's not about kumbaya and coming together and, and just pretending. What happens? What happens when it's all poked holes through? We just have to tear the whole thing down. And the only thing that we see standing there is Jesus. Are we okay with that? I believe we are, but I challenge us, do not hold sacred the ritual. Do not hold sacred our doctrine. Any doctrines that go beyond Christ are no good anyway. All we know, there's just one thing I know. I, I, I told somebody, I think I was telling the guys the other night, I don't mean this as though like that I'm, I'm not living a, an upright life. I am. But the one thing I'm realizing the further I go in this is there is nothing good in me that in my own stuff, doing my own thing, living my own life, I didn't get cleaned up enough where I can walk on my own and do my own stuff and it turns out good. Didn't happen. Left to my own self, left to my own devices, I will turn away from God. Doing my own stuff, I will always fall short of His glory. Doing my own thing, I will always operate in my flesh. And left to ourselves, even in the good things, we will begin to preach our doctrines and our gospel and our understandings. And what we must continually do and I know we, we labor to do this. So this is not a, a poking at, at us. But what we must continue to do is say, Lord, pull all of it down frequently so that I am certain that all I'm seeing is you. All that matters in this is not that we are more right than others. It's not that we are more holy than others. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself holy. What matters is that you are obedient to Jesus. To his word. To do what he says. And just to follow him. I think this is really the heart of what Stephen's trying to say. I think this is really the issue at which people really are offended because denomination, all it is, all denomination is, is boundaries and rules that separate you from everyone else in the kingdom. That's all it is. It's how you're different than they are. And I do not believe that Jesus is interested in that at all. In fact, when we come to the body of Christ, and I've been thinking about this, and I think I'm going to speak on it quickly, should the Lord allow me to. We are to endeavor to keep the oneness of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We are not encouraged to isolate and separate ourselves from other believers or to try to be holier than other people. That is never encouraged by the Lord. Our holiness simply comes from walking with him. That's it. And yes, that cleanses us. And yes, that causes us to be upright. Because how shall a young man cleanse his ways? But by taking heed to the word of God. Obeying it. So, I just challenge you. 
in your own life this week, look at your life and say, Lord, is there anything standing in the way of you only? Amen. Pastor, why don't you come?